Welcome to Arvid's Almanac, a podcast hosted by queer settlers navigating decolonial healing through herbal medicine and myth, queerness and magic, astrology and ancestral connection. My name is Rue McDonald. I'm a non-binary witch, place and story-based learning facilitator uh, through the Queer Directions Learning Center here on Lekwungen territories, so-called Victoria, BC. I'm Micah McDonald, they, he, a clinical herbalist, ecologist, and writer living in Abenaki territory in Vermont. I'm Kenzie. I use pronouns ZK, they, she, an intuitive herbalist, sex posse pleasure activist, gender fluid mermaid, mother of a Scorpio siren, and steward of Wild Faith Wellness and the Sex Herbalist. So welcome back to our listeners. Uh, it's Rue and I here, and we've been on a fun uh, and busy summer hiatus, but we wanted to do get back into the groove and start a uh, another episode because I, I wanted to ask Rue specifically about um, uh, herbs and ritual um, for ancestral connection, death, and grieving in the Gaelic traditions. Um, and I, I'm really curious about this. I wanted to ask Rue about this because they know a bunch about it. And um, I don't. And I'm going to be teaching a class in October, uh, you know, related to similar topics, uh, touching on, uh, you know, other adjacent topics. So I wanted to, to get a little bit in more info on this. Um, yeah, so, so Rue, do you want to start us off with a tarot card? Sure. So I just pulled the high priestess. Oh, which really baby. Nice. Damn. <laughs> Damn. Right out of the gate. And yeah. uh, so it's, it's, uh, I'll just say what's at the bottom of this, um, this card is uh, water, cancer, the moon, and it has this beautiful um, black woman sitting and behind them is uh, this big pile of of pomegranates and there's a crescent moon and beautiful pendant is all very abundant and colorful so that that's mm. really nice beautiful wow that's very auspicious mm-hmm. i think the high priestess because there's um peace around that card that reminds me of having clear sight and this is definitely um a conversation that is very you know when we talk about death and dying practices it definitely brings us into thinking about our relationship with the other world and our relationship with the subconscious and the you know the waters of the subconscious and of ancestral memory so Mm. very appropriate card yeah well where do you want to start i guess maybe i'll start with why i think uh learning about uh, ancestral grieving practices is so important. Um, I'll just, you know, uh, many of you know my ancestry, but I'll just, you know, speak it here. I have ancestors that have been grave tenders. I have ancestors um, from the Isle of Skye and the Isle of Isla, um, from northern Scotland, Argyllshire area, Glencoe, and also Fife and Ireland. 
And, um, and so I have a deep relationship to my ancestral lineages um, through keening and laments, singing. Uh, the way I've been learning the Gaelic language is through singing and laments. Um, I've been studying with um, a wonderful lineage holder named Sheena McKenna, who's very generous and um, and wonderful teacher. And so with Sheena, I've been starting to learn some of these songs and and then through my own research have been learning more and more but what brought me to this was this deep fascination with cultural um, collective grief practices as a spiritual technology keening and lamenting a spiritual technology um, that the the um, the illegalization and the cultural um, tab making it a cultural taboo to participate in collective grieving process such as keening and lament, I think is a calcification point of colonial domination that has significantly undermined the, resi the cultural resiliency and like ability to be sovereign and connected to, to family and connected to land because processes of colonization um, systematically severed all those relationships in order to create, you know, a unwell population that's pliable and controllable mm, so important and and uh rarely do i hear about that you know I, I think that in in the culture that i'm raised in grief and grieving the dead is um just totally pushed aside is not brought to the fore you know rarely actually see it we do those things <laughs> in like secret recesses away from the rest of society. And yeah, I think it must have deep psychological impacts on us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's so much to grieve in this world. And so much of that is so unheld by culture, um, where in in a in a cult in a different you know context where grief can be held well in village context and in um spiritual technologies that are you know passed on from generation to generation um and where grief and grieving communally is norm normalized i think it um i think it creates a more congruent environment for for the release of grief um i had a, um, a mentor named shauna jans and um or shauna jans and she would talk about grief as um as almost like a tar like a spiritual energetic tar in the body that builds up over time mm. and um and it needs to be released, whether that's through, you know, tears, whether that's through singing, finding a way to move, move it through the body and, and offering it back. It's kind of like, um, like any kind of energy, it, it, it can be unwellness in one place, but it can be abundance and wellness 
when channeled and, and offered um, to another uh, being or another, um, another um, like for example, Shana would uh, offer us the practice of offering our tears to water um, as a way of ritualizing the, the exchange of energy and the gifting like when we when we keen when we when we cry it's a gift to land which is a really beautiful invitation that i think it fundamentally like is kind of radical <laughs> yeah in this society certainly which i mean mm-hmm. this society likes to pretend that everything is normal and happy and you know light <laughs> all the time uh, likes to ignore mm-hmm. the hard stuff mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think the hard stuff, the difficult emotions, the kind of depths of the soul, that's not quote unquote productive. Like that doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't help capitalism in any way. Right. Yeah. So tries to suppress those energies that kind of detract from productive uh, physically productive energy, I guess. Right. Yeah, totally. There's definitely um, this uh, encroachment of, of capitalist uh, uh, commodification of, of time and bodies. And um, as well as uh, I think, I think the main culprit would probably be uh, Victorian culture coming mm. up into the highlands um, and coming over with the settlers, um, being normalized as as um, civilized, whereas other ways of being in emotion and in a body were considered barbaric and, um, you know, they were considered heathens, um, the, you know, indigenous Scottish and Irish population. And um, so it, it's my understanding that around the 1950s is when um, keening and uh, keening practices were really like on the way, well on the way out um, in Ireland. Or should I say gone underground, as I refuse to believe that the practice of keening has gone extinct in any way. Uh, there was a practice of, um, of women, usually, who be at the gravesite at the time um, yeah so because of this uh rising of a normal and assimilation into victorian culture um these communal practices were were outlawed um and it was um i think the power of collective grieving should not be understated um and i would say this is one of the most harmful sources of ancestral trauma that perpetuates today um, keening is a grieving wailing practice that has its own musical key i believe it's like pentatonic scale um, i might be wrong on that but um and like in its own right is a spiritual technology for moving grief through the body and uh as it was you know dwindling it was because it was being uh ridiculed and condemned um you know like little kids would 
would ridicule the old women who were keening at the side of the grave. You know, there was um, eventually uh, just through civilians, policing other civilians created, made it like culturally unacceptable. Um, Mm. And I think this is a loss as, as like a major turning point towards capitalist individualist culture and away from cultural integrity and resilience. And um, it's my understanding that Keeners held a collective grief on behalf of the community. And as they would keen they would um they would like recite genealogy as much as they knew and they would speak to the uh, positive aspects of this person's personality and what they offered to the community and then they would you know acknowledge the family and how and and emote as how the family would be feeling um and then, you know, as they were grieving, there it was, it was quite wild. Um, the, and it was, it was a role in community as, as important as any other, right? Like they, this was someone's work, um, whatever, you know, not work as, as the capitalist culture would, would imagine, but, you know, somebody's, they would be compensated for their for what they offer because it was acknowledged as extremely important um, to channel the grief of the community and to um, it acknowledges that grief is not something that's just felt by one person um, it acknowledges that grief is is held by the whole village it's a collective experience and in my mind that as an act of resilience and cultural reclamation um, and it's a beautiful way of feeling connected and resourced by spiritual technologies of my ancestors. Mm, Thank you. You said that grieving is collective and that we can't actually do it alone. Um, I, I want, would you mind like going into that a little bit more? Yeah, I think we can do it alone. Um, But I think the main piece of what I was trying to communicate there is that, um, of course, there's no right way of doing it. But it is really powerful when we can grieve collectively, because to join our our nervous systems um, in uh, what I've been taught is called morphic resonance. is our, our nervous systems become a greater web that can hold the immensity of, of emotional challenge, like challenging emotions and big grief. Um, and mm. I think that is a aspect of community resiliency that cannot be understated. I think it, it is important now and it's going to become more and more important as our world changes. And, you know, we're going to have a lot of death and we already do have a lot of death. I really like what you just said about when we grieve together, we can like hold bigger grief than we can as a single person. And yes, you know, I, I totally agree that that's actually even more important than ever, than it has ever been before, because, you know, Mm -hmm. grief has always been present as like a loved one dying or, um, 
you know, most mostly a loved one dying, but in the context of colonialism and like climate chaos and um, just like systems collapse and political turmoil, the grief is bigger than it has ever been before. And mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, it's already, I've, I feel like I've been deeply impacted by the amount of things to be, that I'm capable of grieving. It's just unbelievably overwhelming. And I don't know if it's ever mm. been this bad before. Um, I mean, uh, societies have been experiencing colonialism and genocide for a long time, but this is like next, I feel like this is next level, you know? Yeah, I think there's also been many times in our ancestral lineages where people have felt like it is the end of the world and that all is coming to an end. Um, And so, yes, perhaps now there is more grief than there has ever been. Um, And I'd also love to offer that um, part of when we sing together and we work with connecting to ancestors, they have a wealth of, of experience with huge um, insurmountable grief and when we connect to them and learn from them they can offer a lot of wisdom and support in times where you know we feel huge huge grief ourselves in our different contexts how do you feel like our ancestors can support us in that way well similarly when you know human bodies gather it expands our capacity to hold grief. And then we, you know, create a kim, a circle of protection around us, and we welcome in well ancestors. They also have nervous systems. They also come in and support a keening process and create a greater web of, of support that can that can even you know hold grief even more as well when you bring them in they start to teach you they start to teach you the uh, how to how to grieve and they'll start to whisper important things in your ear when you get to start learning about how they experience and move grief through as well as how they think about death and dying I think it's really important to do that um, work if you if that's something that's interesting and supportive to your process um, is to yeah work at your our relationships with our ancestors and and invite them in in our you know in our magical space in our grieving space mm. and how do your ancestors by what methods do your ancestors communicate this wisdom to you? Well, I guess everyone's different, but for me, I def- I experience um, sight, sound, smell, um, and feeling. And often it's kind of like a unfolding uh, image that dances across my mind's eye. And, and then just tuning in with my senses and seeing what comes. Mm -hmm. 
so I'll catch, I'll catch a keen, you know, I'll just start, start with a kind of dirt. Like I have, um, I have a, a harmonium that I'm using as kind of my, my drone. It's really mm. helpful to start with a drone and then just allowing the voice to have, to, to have its own life in a lot of ways and yeah just offering it just making an offering of the voice it's very powerful beautiful and I feel like I've also um I mean the major way that I'm visited by my ancestors is just in dreaming um Mm. though I'm I don't necessarily always get a message I might just get a um, a feeling of being being with them again, you know, and what they made me feel when they were alive. Um, that's mostly what what I receive, I guess. Mm. Something else I've learned from my ancestors is, um, you know, they were coastal people, and the big part of their relationship to death and dying is their relationship to the ocean Mm. and um i recently uh read this beautiful article um by uh, i think it's marie sheena campbell and it's called the sea as an emotional landscape in scottish gaelic song and this is, you know, it just resonated so much with me because in a lot of the songs that I've been learning with, with Sheen and McKenna, it, they, they really, really draw on the imagery and the emotional um, evocativeness of the ocean mm-hmm. and the, you know, the beating of the waves on the rock being like the heart and how the grief, you know, beats on the heart and the expansiveness on the, of the ocean. You don't know how deep it is, or it's like a huge unknown, which is similar to you know, when you look out, uh, the journey of death feels, feels huge. <laughs> feels um, so like there's so much unknown mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of, um grief around like it's very very common in our ancestral um in our ancestors lives that people would be lost at sea because you know it was much more common that a, a ship would go down in a storm and or you know someone would go off and have a mishap and um never come back and uh as well, a lot of love songs, you know, there's a lot of laments that are love songs about being separated, um, where you're literally across the ocean from your love, or maybe you're down the street, but it feels like you're across the ocean from your love. So the ocean is, um, again and again, like comes in as, as this beautiful um, sight of, of um where we can look to understand, I think, a lot about our ancestral grieving practices. Mm. I love that so much because uh, both some, both sides of my family are mariners. Um, so the ocean is a big part of my lineage too. And um, it also makes me think about how just 
wild and chaotic and uncontrollable the ocean can be. And there's like nothing we can do, we can do to suppress that power. And thinking about the, like you said, the wildness and the like irrepressible emotion that can happen with grief mm-hmm. and grieving when it's naturally expressed and we don't try yeah. to um, suppress that. It's, it's so powerful and that I can see a relationship there. And actually mm-hmm. uh, it's funny. I'll tell a little story, but my dad, I just um, went to the ocean last weekend um, I met my dad there and he sailed across the Long Island Sound uh, to meet me on the Connecticut coast. And um, he sailed back two days ago and was met with like in a ferocious storm, right? Oh my. And he's a really good sailor, so he survived. But like, I would have had a panic attack the whole time, the way he described it, <laughs> just like a wall of water. He was just, and he had, he couldn't see anything, right? He couldn't see a thing for hours. Um, anyway, he, we, I talked to him yesterday about it. Just, I just wanted to know more because he basically survived a very dangerous situation and mm. he said when he he's a very adventurous person so he kind of took it as a fun but a fun version of danger but he like a um, challenge right yeah like a challenge. yeah and he is very capable so i think he trusted his instincts but um what he said afterward is that when he when he came out of it he, he was it was like he entered a new world it was like an extreme he just lived through an extremely cathartic moment that um was like a rite of passage and i can imagine that if we grieve in a traditional way where we're really expelling and participating in that power that like wild chaotic energy um and all of that pain and we really like move through it it is a cathartic experience and it should be, I imagine. Absolutely. Sorry. I just needed to turn off my mic. There's like an ice cream truck going by. Oh my God. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> We're like talking about dirges and like death tunes. And they're like, la, la, la. Anyway. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so I I love that story. Thank you yeah. so much. That's that's totally it, right? The ocean truly does test us, um, and sometimes we we need to do it. Like you know, in in the case of your dad, he was totally alone. Right. Um, yeah, and then you know, if you go through that with one other person, you can imagine that you would be deeply bonded with that person there's something like Mm. deeply connective about going through these kind of rites of initiation where you feel like you're gonna die you know it's (laughs) you feel like you know the world's gonna swallow you up the ocean the ocean of grief is gonna swallow you up yeah and um yeah it, it made me think of um just the the piece about about laments and keening keening is is a bit different there's different um types of mourning songs there's the kind of death tune um and that is sung during the procession of the coffin 
And then there's the um, dirge um, that's sung outside during the funeral procession. Um, but then there's also like the keening, right? Which is <clears throat> more of the wild, um, emergent, made up on the spot, um, uh, like wildness, more of like this oceanic um, grief. And in all of these, we see echoes of in in the two other morning song types we see echoes of the keening often in in the vocals um so these vocal sounds have don't have any particular meaning um, but they're often the choruses and um the the older the older laments they they really do sound like the keening um which used to company western highlands and and islands um uh scottish like funeral processions and and um so these kind of wailings are like are often like atonal moaning and wailing um and with uh like the kind of of sounds that are like ovan ov omogra um oh no oh no ah wo ah wo so it's all these like oh sounds and ah sounds that um you know once you start singing it really is just so um hypnotic like it's very meditative i would say and you can feel your body shift as you sing and you can start to feel you know, emotions come and they rise and they release and they rise and they release. And so I imagine that um, these um, often women, I think they were the, here in my notes um, in Irish, they were called Bean Turum. Um, and they, they would be channeling not only their own grief, but the grief of the community and so yeah it made me think about how these vocables it's um incredibly cathartic and also resonant of the landscape resonant of like the sounds of the wind the sounds of the ocean um and and uh and the the howling you know it's it's really beautiful to think about um about these these vocables and how they hold and represent both a, like a relationship to the land and the wildness of of the sounds of the wild and um of the ocean and of the winds and that they are part of like you know I'll, uh, like almost like work with those waves of grief that flood over everyone and and channel those the the grief through the sounds that is reminiscent of the sound of the sea beating on the shore or the the winds howling mm -hmm. yeah I love that because it's like our inner landscape is 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 reflected in and spread across the outer landscape um, so yes. it becomes easier to hold because it's spread out, I guess. Mm, I like that. Absolutely. And so our keens, <laughs> if we were to like 
channel keening here you know on stolen indigenous land it's going to sound really different or maybe not that different you know depending on where you live <laughs> but it might sound different it will be um its own sinistry of of um of relationship to place and body and grief um but i think there are these aspects of of ancestral culture that are that are really cool um ways that uh, are really interesting to think about like weaving into our present culture um it will look different but we can still you know learn from from the old old songs and um yeah i have a few different ones here and um i have a like there's a few that um i found on like old archives if you go and you like look up like irish songs archives and put in laments or keening you can listen to some pretty incredible incredible voices mm. um and get a sense of of how, where there are those resonance like when you sing in a traditional way or in a poppy way there's all these different ways where sound resonates differently in the throat and the head and then the body mm. um i and then you know this way of, of keening also creates a totally different somatic fingerprint of, of um, sound resonance. And uh, I think that's kind of cool too, but you can hear it in, in um, more modern folk music too. Like Ethnid Huhan does this beautiful song name. I don't, I, uh, it's called grief. And um, she starts with kind of like a traditional keen kind of like, oh, 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 he's old, old. you know, she starts with, with that to kind of open up her song. And it's a way that, um, you know, I just found it so arresting, you know, and brought me into this deep state of, of meditativeness and calm mm. and um and also attunement with my own emotions and um so I think it's cool that although it was you know taboo and and considered barbaric and what heathens do there are these beautiful echoes that we can still see in laments and even popular music today mm. i really like that phrase you use uh, attunement with our own emotions and it, mm -hmm. it just makes me think that uh like recently i've been thinking about how when i am unaware of my own emotions i'm kind of like captured by them um and i but I can't identify them. I'm kind of like absorbed in the feeling, but I can't say mm. why or what it is. And it's like, it's taking, it's taking me over. Right. Mm. But if I feel attuned to it, I would imagine that I would be aware that it's happening and like, not necessarily saying go away or trying to suppress it, but just identifying that it exists and that, actually allowing some space um 
between mm. me, like between the rest of me and that emotion. So it doesn't have the same mm. kind of controlling ability that it does if I'm just totally absorbed in it without knowing what it is. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, definitely. There's um, There's a certain kind of like self-mercy that I think is really important mm. where you can look at the emotions that you're having and say, this is, this is what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> this is just for now. And this is, you know, yes, feel it. Let yourself feel it. Um, Francis Weller always says that, um, you know, grief and, and joy are sisters. Um, there is an aspect to grieving that expands our sensory capacity or like our, our felt capacity. And when we can really allow space for deep grief to move through and be held and we can develop trust around that process with ourselves or our keening or grieving community, um, it also expands our capacity to uh, experience more joy. It just like widens the widens the spectrum of of experience yeah and uh, you know um it makes me think also how kenzie is doing really cool things helping zaid um kenzie's kid be more aware of their own emotions and um mm just to be able to speak to what Zaid is feeling, like help Zaid say the thing that they're feeling. So like, I'm angry, mm. I'm sad. And um, I like seeing that in Zaid does have an ability to say that. And um, why is that important? I think because I know so many grown adults in this colonized culture, culture who cannot do that. Right. And so when they can't speak to their own emotions, they, A, might not be consciously aware that they're having emotions and mm -hmm. B, are not in control of them, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that is specifically problematic for people socialized as men mm. um, because it's, it's socially in a, in a colonial culture where it's shameful to have emotions. Um, so men or you know people socialize as men are um taught that they have to deny that they have emotions um but of course everybody has emotions so <laughs> mm -hmm. what what ends up happening is just like unawareness of the emotions that are happening and that 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 can come out in like harmful or violent ways and mm. unfortunately i see that a lot right i think this is another cult like where another situation where Victorian culture is kind of the culprit, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe part, you know, where like any kind of disagreement or uncomfortable emotions are swept under the rug and, you know, and, you know, the person with the most power, which is usually the dad, you know, yeah. the landlord kind of deciding, uh, making the last call around anything that happens and um, anyone else not really having much of a say, and, um, yeah, where having big emotions, displaying big emotions, being in a body, all of that is, um, is, is, uh, tabooed and, um, considered like 
you know, less civilized to, to be experiencing emotions, a, a trait of the, of a lower class, right? <laughs> right. And also relegated to one, only one half or less than one half of the human species, which is women. <clears throat> And, mm-hmm. you know, women, well, like being... even women were not being allowed to grieve or have emotions. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But that being associated with like some animal, you know, animal nature or just, like yeah. you said, barbarism or something. And mm-hmm. what I think is so uh, refreshing is to learn about like traditional gala culture, you know, pre-colonized mm-hmm. culture and like all genders were free to express emotion Mm -hmm. in all the ways and to openly cry in public you know Mm -hmm. that was not taboo like it is for yeah um anglicized or colonized culture Mm -hmm. i have a little poem here that i want i wanted to offer i'll do i won't speak the gallic because i can't do it well Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but this is by zachary magali um uh from lewis and uh it goes my heart is like oceans on which grief and vexation are swimming the profound love of my sweetheart is my constant great sickness and malady but it's just a cool um uh example of a lament and how the ocean um speaks to his grief it helps him exp- explain the the depth of his grief mm. yeah there's also another song that i wanted to use as a bit of a case study um it's called alan Dane or dark-haired alan uh the mm. song um is a traditional scottish lament that dates back to 1788 and tells the tale of a sailor um alan or alan alan um, who was a sea captain sailing from Stornoway to Scalpe to marry his love, Anag, or Annie in English. Unfortunately, he sails right into a storm and perishes with his ship, and poor Anag uh, lost her will to live and died a few months afterwards. Um, because, and so you think about in smaller communities, uh, this this kind of tragedy would would just be devastating you know i think in in cities and other situ like you know the kind of modern culture we live in i don't think it's the same at all i think when you live on an island it's just a uh, or in a small community like this it's um it's a very specific kind of experience um anyway so uh because there was not enough soil on the barren island of scalpe her father took her to took her coffin by boat to a cemetery on the main island of Paris. However, a storm caused the coffin to be blown off her father's boat and washed up on the same island as her fiancé's body had been found. And so um, this song was uh, it was said to be the song that she sings, but it was it was written in honor of their their love and as a way to support the community in metabolizing the grief that they experienced at losing this young couple. And it goes, um, (laughs) 
It's just the first verse and um you can hear the vocables right in the chorus right oh he like these are these are part of the vocables that i was talking about and um it translates to um uh, how sorrowful am i when i rise in the morning oh he i would go with you um and then vocables and then dark-haired alan i i would go with you and uh the rest um of the verses translate to if the sand be your pillow if the seaweed be your bed if the fish are your candles bright if the seals are your watchmen i would drink although would abhor of your heart's blood after you were drowned wow wow thank you that was beautiful and uh you know when you when you sung it i recognize it like i've heard it's a very popular song um mm-hmm. i had no but i had no idea that it was a lament um mm-hmm. wow that that whole that adds, adds a whole new layer of depth to that and it's a very deep song you know, so. it is and i think like modern singings of it um i don't feel it doesn't evoke a lot of emotion. Sometimes it sounds very sing-songy, and I think that often happens with modern rec- recordings of laments, is that they don't actually evoke very much spirit in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I seek to, to sing them differently. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's such a good point. We have to sing them in a strategic way, to, uh, aiming to evoke the emotion. Yeah, or just being open to to it, it it emerging and kind of a lot of these laments they'll have a vocables piece, and so if you can't learn all the words, just just sing the vocables, you know, and that is a really great place to start of just getting into a meditative space and allowing what needs to move. And I will burst out, I will cry, and like and and you know, as I sing, and it is part of, of moving it through. The beautiful thing about singing with other people is that you can cry and the song keeps going and you can just keep letting it work you, letting the, letting the magic and the medicine of that song move, move it through you. Mm. Yeah. Well, I have a, I have a question about Samhain, but um, I want to sure. make sure, is, is this the right time for that? So, yeah, totally. So uh, one of my questions is uh, what about the kind of ancestor rituals or the death-related cultural practices that happen on Samhain? How much overlap uh, with like Samhain practices traditionally, um, which, uh, you know, November 1st, um, the beginning of winter in the Gaelic calendar, how much of that overlaps with what we've already been talking about in terms of grieving practices? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. I don't think I know a ton about that. I can just speak to what I've, you know, what the ancestors have whispered in my ears. (laughs) Mm. Um, I think that Samhain is a time where of course we know that the veil is quite thin 
so thin, in fact, that the unseen can move across it with ease and, you know, the odd human gets lost in, in the mists and the fog across the, across the veil. Um, and so it's a time of, of a lot of uncertainty. It's also the new year, right, in the Celtic calendar. The year is born into the descending dark. Um, and at this time, because the veil is thin, there's an understanding that the ancestors are very close. And so it is a time to feast and to be present with the unseen and to acknowledge that they're going to be there. You know, the veil is thin. Someone's going to be visiting you. Something to think about when you're going about your days. <laughs> and, um, and, and magically, you know, what you're doing to um, tend your, your hearth and um, create boundaries with the unseen too because it's also a time where you know things can go awry <laughs> because mm -hmm. of those energies and um, but mostly I think it's a time to you know have um, have a time to feast with the ancestors and allow the ancestors to be like oh let's eat this and as we feast we offer to the ancestors and uh, and tune into oh what songs do the ancestors want to hear and uh oh what kind of stories want to come forward um i think it's a time just to be really listening and um and i think entertaining them is fun <laughs> i think listening to them and seeing if there's any messages or gifts that want to come through um uh, but in terms of like grieving i'm i'm sure that it is also a time to just to be with that deep descending dark you know what are we going into the dark with what are we what um unanswerable questions what um insurmountable grief what um irreconcilable polarities <laughs> are we bringing into the dark it's certainly a time to to um, ritualize that very real aspect of our um, of our spiritual journeys. Mm. Mm, that's beautiful, and also thinking, uh, you know, this might not be a moment of acute grief or acute pain, but this might be a moment to actually celebrate the dead and celebrate um, or remember them um, and the and offer to them you know in a kind of giving way that might be less um, less emotionally acute but still like there's an echo of that grief that mm -hmm. has happened in the past um, yeah that longing but, mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think that in, you know, mainstream colonial North American culture, there isn't really any holiday where there is like a collective moment of remembrance of ancestors that is not related to like an immediate death. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that is a necessary space to kind of... Uh, uh, pro provide a, a time and a place for um, just 
that that like positive remembrance that this is this is part of daily life that mm. can't be shoved aside and like protected against it's actually like it comes around in a cycle every year um, mm-hmm. and i wonder if that you know many many cultures have some kind of like ancestor worship day um like mm. uh mm-hmm. el dia de los muertos in um Spanish-speaking countries, you know, there's something, and that's that's also celebratory um, of the dead. There, there's there's a reason why so many cultures have this kind of day. I think. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's deeply therapeutic. Yeah. Um. You know, to to connect with the dead, and um, and deeply resourcing because, you know, I think that to reduce our relationships to the material world really cuts off a huge um, opportunity to be held in, in really deep, secure attachment with the unseen. And I, um, yeah, I think having like a day, a year is cool. What was I, what came up when you said that? I was like, hmm. Yeah. It made me think of, a couple things. One that we do as a culture come together around grief in in strange ways, like Memorial Day uh, <laughs> in Canada, you know, where we like all the kids learn how to sing Flanders Fields, and we're all in the assembly and we all like listen to the militaristic um, trumpet solo do 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 and we all like have a moment of silence and nobody understands what the heck is happening and everything's stiff and rigid and what is going on like what are we actually doing (laughs) there's no soul to it to begin with you know and like what kind of colonial patterns are we just you know reifying when we don't acknowledge you know the context of those wars and how they you know created a huge amount of grief for a number of people not just you know the people who in our countries who who died in those wars but all the ways that that the implications that war had for instability and suffering for you know and like other people and um and then yeah or like you know when they have like war reenactments <laughs> it's yeah. like a weird way that like larping and griefing have come together they're <laughs> like there's some weird settler thing around like re- we're gonna reenact this this war as a way of like coming to terms with what has happened yeah. um or remembering um transmitting that knowledge but it's in a way that doesn't actually support metabolization it's more like the crystallization like never forget yeah (laughs) right well i mean if you think about war reenactment it's only the war like i don't know if groups of keeners go around and reenact the keening i I doubt it you know (laughs) no they would be totally like that's so vulnerable to do in this culture um 
that would be hard but really cool i yeah, would support it, people it doing would. that <laughs> yeah that would balance it out a little bit i i think yeah <laughs> there's there's no there's probably very little emotional processing that happens in a war reenactment i would imagine i mean it's just glorifying well, maybe. what it's doing is it's glorifying violence i mean it's not it doesn't seem a lot more complicated than that to me i think there's like maybe it's more like like how you were talking about when an emotion comes in and you don't have any control anymore it's like a weird possession yeah i imagine that there's like strange possessions that happen during those war reenactments and those memorials you know war memorials where people are like people's unwell ancestors like jump in and take over you know oh i imagine plus those reenactments often happen where the battle actually happened you know there's certainly entities walking around there on a regular basis i would imagine absolutely i i would not put it past you know the 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 spirits of that are still in a place that would want to like reach out and jump up and like jump into somebody's body for like <laughs> a fun afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Boy. Yeah. Anyway. That's, that's an interesting, it's an interesting thing you brought up about that. And then in contrast, this other story jumps to mind of, um, you know, I was working with a learning community here on um, Wasanic Territories, and they, um, we had we had a, a parent um, pass away really suddenly, and it was really really awful, so traumatic for for the whole learning community because it just took everyone by surprise, mm. and um, there wasn't a lot of. Um, community knowledge around how to come together around it or what to do and as educators we were all kind of like what do we do (laughs) right how do we support this child how do we support all the children who now who like by proxy um now are exposed to this you know experience this trauma um and what um Two of, of the main organizers are these badass Ukrainian uh, women with uh, Ukrainian heritage who um, are doing, you know, sacred Greek practice um, with Shauna and um, also connecting to their own ancestral lineages. They um, what they brought was at our year end gathering, we honored all the students. Um, and then we also had what they were calling the grief tree. Um, so this was, I think Shauna's offering was that we can, um, be like, go to the place where the children have been learning over the year and ask a tree to be, to help hold community grief process. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so there was an oak atop a mound that, um, these women went and asked permission from. And they felt they got that permission. And then um, after we were, after we honored all the students, there was an opportunity to take flowers and, and, um, and go visit the grief tree and um, allow spaciousness for pretending each and every person's grief as they felt they needed to, you know, they could go by themselves, they could go with their family and it was just an opportunity for the whole community to have that that time and to um, 
to be just be intentional about it. Mm. Wow. That, that's such a good idea. And I like that in the absence of kind of traditions that we've inherited uh, from our ancestors to relate to our grief, that when we invent ones, and sometimes that can be even more meaningful than kind of like reclaiming ones that we don't, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that goes back to what I was saying around like, however we weave this into present reality, like has to make sense and has to be emerging out of our, our context. It has to feel real. If you just like sing a lament that you like, learn but don't have any emotional connection to it doesn't have any spirit what else i think i also wanted to uh ask if you had any thoughts about herbs that are used for in the context of grieving or related to the dead um Mm. well i seem to remember that um there would be a process of saining um and uh, like you would want to like clear this the air and clear the space of um any not benevolent (laughs) unseen and so um yeah saining could happen with a number of different herbs from mugwort to um rosemary to saint john's wort um and that was the use of um either like water with these herbs or like burning the herbs but i think water was a really important piece of of that and um i imagine that the water might have been infused with different plants and any kind of i'm sure there would have been you know any kind of plants that would be um a nervine you know to support both um the person who is perhaps in the process of making the transition um and the people around you know who are keeping vigil and perhaps are in great distress perhaps even more distress than the person who is passing um to have different kinds of plants that would be nervine that would um calm you know the mind and the heart and um yeah i think about um hawthorn for sure as tending to the heart and also um kind of being being a a plant that um or a tree um being that really does tend to the heart and tends to um the veil you know where there was many hawthorns it was said to be quite quite magical where the veil was thin so there's some kind of relationship between the hawthorn and and um, the veil being quite thin in relationship to death i've even heard that some people have described the smell of the hawthorn flower as um um the smell of of death mm-hmm yeah, that's a good that's a good one to mention for sure. Um, there's the yew tree too. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yew trees were common in grave grave um, yards, kirkyards, because they were 
believe to help the spirit travel from the roots up up to up through the, the branches to transition to the other world. Um, and also that you is, you know, nearly immortal. I mean, they can la- they can live for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, um, this, the, of course, the deep relationships to the you would have been formed because of how old they can grow. They can grow. There's like, you know, a lot of, um, myths around the other world are uh, associated with be- being ever young you know mm. the, um, and the other world is can be like an island can be under the ocean can be an island under the ocean it can be an island usually to the west um or it can be under a mound <laughs> it can be like so many different places and there's so many different um descriptions of it and all the folk stories and myths but um often it is a place both totally other as well as very familiar um (laughs) again bridging polarities (laughs) but like a kind of mirror world yeah and and also back to the tree just for a second is that to think about being in the presence of a tree that's thousands of years old or even just hundreds of years old, um, especially if it's a tree that our ancestors have looked at. Mm. I've, that's been meaningful to me before, just to be like, wow, my ancestors touched this tree before or my ancestors looked at this tree and mm. they were in the presence of this tree when they were alive. And that was, it's a way to connect like multiple generations together i think and then of course mm-hmm. trees have um often represented like genealogies um, yes so that's an interesting connection that's cool um yeah i'm i think also stone was really important um mm-hmm. in the um like broadly speaking you know, Gaelic, Gaelic <laughs> culture, but then, you know, specifically in Ireland and Scotland, um, stone was such an incredible, important um, technology, part of like spiritual technology for, for connecting with ancestors, like the touching of a stone, uh, you know, if a stone had a hole in it, moving through the stone, um, standing stones, all these stones um, and also like ritual spaces made of stone. So like the actual container where rituals took place in order to connect with ancestors who are in stone cairns. Like there's this interesting um, relationship that, you know, it's hard to know (laughs) Um, how, you know, the indigenous people of those places were thinking about that, but um, even you know the remnants of of the stories and practices that have trickled across time to present present days you know there's something about the stones that evoke gathering the the um the bringing together of energy of people and of the unseen um the contact with stones 
there's um you know the story of of Bronwyn the way I know the story of Bronwyn is that she was married and in a relationship where she was being abused and so she taught her song of grief to a starling and the starling carried her song over to her family uh, which started a whole war and the result of that war left so much destruction that when she finally did return home she went to her ancestral cairn and grieved at, at a standing stone and her grief was so great that it broke that stone in two and that stone still sits on the banks of the Avon River. Mm. And so stones have been, you know, part of grief practice and gathering and um, also, you know, cosmological, tra tracking of cosmological bodies and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I mean, I think most often about how stone in the Gaelic tradition is used to mark time, but also cycles of time that keeps returning again and again mm. in a kind of eternal way. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I <laughs> <laughs> um, love getting nerdy about this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and then, of course, you know, there's the story of Ar Arvid and Miach. Right. Where the catalyst moment of the story, which is the story, which is the catalyst story of this podcast, yes. <laughs> is keening, it's grieving, it's crying, really weeping over the bones. And I think that's a lot of what, you know, you and I and Kenzie are trying to do is, you know, we're like feeling into the deep grief of loss that colonization has uh, caused to our, our lineages. But as we grieve over the bones and we give them this spaciousness and time and, um, and, and look, you know, look to the past perhaps, or, or look to our, our dreams, our inner eyes or our ancestors, we keen, you know, we keen as we do this. It's part of the transla translation process is a lot of like grief um and as we weep over the bones you know up grows this abundant garden of medicine so cool yeah uh that it is a good reminder and also if you haven't listened to episode one yet that's when we kind of get into the arvid and miak story um but yeah that speaks so much to what we're talking about mm-hmm and that the you know the transformative power of grief. Mhm. Mm um, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, is there anything else you wanted to to add that we haven't touched on yet? Mm, well, I'm sure, you know, I could just talk about this forever, but perhaps for now I feel good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. That was really, we touched on a lot of different pieces of grieving and relationships to death and, and dying. And um, yeah, yeah, and brought it back to its relationship to our experience in colonial 
you know, in a colonial reality. And um, or I guess last thing I'm interested in knowing is um, how, how do you utilize some of this knowledge? Like, do you, um, have you practiced any of these um, things that we've talked about or um, even, even like on Samhain, is there any um, ancestry, a- ancestral connection practices that you uh, like to use? Um, um, I, I'm a keener. I keen every day. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, I draw on, um, on this knowledge every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my, my Nana and my mom, we have a, an interesting lineage that we carry. Um, and I don't know how far it goes back, but it's, it's, a it's a sweetness and it's, and it's a, and it's wet eyes, you know, mm. always kind of with, with, um, holding life in that way, allowing for, um, tears to arise when they need to. And I'm so grateful for that, that lineage. Yeah. Um, yeah, anytime I'm, anytime there's big transition in my life, I, I'm singing, um, you know, ever since I was really young, you know, singing used to always be the way that I moved, moved emotions through. And, um, and so it's, I think it's beautiful to look back and see how much my ancestors were guiding me even before I had this knowledge. Um, and yeah, so just singing regularly, letting that, Im- like as a way of attuning to myself and attuning with my partner and my family and my friends. Um, and uh, and then in terms of um, like a more specifically Samhain um, practice, I... <laughs> I think a lot about ritualizing what I'm going into the dark with, you know, what am I bringing into these, into the winter months and, um, you know, perhaps creating an altar, um, bringing those, those pieces to the altar in, in the form of any kind of a representative stone or even like written word or, um, whatever I feel called making offerings to the ancestors, um, and, and feasting. I'm definitely going to be feasting. I'm definitely going to be telling stories, um, and around other people feasting and telling stories and offering songs. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I would suggest to anyone who wanted to, to start a Samhain ancestral connection practices truly just to to bless you know bless the hearth of your home which is often like a candle um create a sovereign space um or in gaelic it's a kiem um like a circle of protection and um asking any um unseen well unseen beings to bless that space and for your well ancestors to come close and to help um and and doing anything you need to that you um you know whether you have someone guiding you or you're doing it 
um, with a friend, just being aware that like also in that time when you're lighting your hearth, um, you can be drawing all sorts of kinds of unseen uh, ones, um, even the unwell ones, you know. And so when you create that kiem, that uh, circle of protection, you're offering those ones who are not well yet to receive of the overflow and the abundance that you will be creating there and, and holding them in, in love, but they're not going to come in um, inside your, your kiem, your space. Um, and also you might want to like think about um, any kind of protections for your home around that time um, as you're, as you're celebrating and welcoming the, the unseen close, you, uh, it, it's good to be intentional and also realize that we don't totally know, um, what we're, what we're inviting in if we're not being intentional. So just to be aware <laughs> and thoughtful. Cool. On, on Sao and I do something pretty simple and have for the last few years just, um, done a basic traditional kind of putting food out for the ancestors, um, putting photos out of the ancestors and mm -hmm. um, kind of just acknowledging them, lighting candles and, and leaving the mm. food out overnight um, for them. Like, you know, uh, the, the night of October 31st over to the November 1st, Samhain. Um... Yeah, just and kind of just think about the ancestors and honor honor them. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, I like bringing pictures of the ancestors for for Samhain specifically. It feels important. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, great. Well, thank you so much for for sharing this uh, knowledge with us and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really Thank valuable. Thank you so much. Cool. Well, uh, do you want to say anything, uh, share about anything that's coming up for you? Sure. Um, well, at the end of this month, we're going to be doing our first in-person Sacred Weaver's Circle, which is really exciting. I'm going to be sharing um, an Irish story uh, of the horned weaving women and the and the spirit of the well, and um, we'll be doing fiber arts and weaving and uh, ancestral connection, intending to the different thresholds of grief that we have around belonging um, with the land, with village, with uh, the ancestors, and and with the unseen, and. Um, so that's that's coming up very soon, and then uh, coming up, uh, I'm going to be practicing out of um, uh, Lekwungen territories, and uh, as well as moving up to um, the Dark Island, uh, the Cortez Island, and um, I'll be doing um, programming both there and here and so we're going to do another plants and planets um series so keep stay tuned for that those will be in-person two-hour workshops and um, there will be four different dates um, where we will be connecting with um, plants for that season 
And uh, and then at Samhain, I'm sure there will be some kind of storytelling event that I haven't planned yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that, stay tuned for that. <laughs> awesome. That all sounds really amazing. Yeah, for myself, I'm mostly focusing on grad school and two kind of big research projects I'm working on. Uh, one of them is uh, um, a book with a fellow herbalist, Hannah Mitchell, um, here. And um, it's herbs for kind of substance use and uh, dependence, herbs and, and nutrition. Um, so anyway, we're working on that, hoping to propose it to a publisher soon. Um, in the next month or so. And then, um, next, uh, and in October, kind of, like I said, I'll be teaching a community class through, through the, uh, Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism. So the title is, is Samhain Gaelic Healing Traditions and the Politics of Ancestral Reconnection for Euro-American Settlers. Whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, That's and, yeah it's a lot of things uh, <laughs> Important. But, uh, anyway Important i feel like Samhain is a really good opportunity for people of european descent uh, especially gaelic descent to um to contemplate what it means to relate to our ancestors in the context of uh you know being part of colonial society especially in north america um, yeah. and how tricky that can be, you know, both what are the benefits of connecting with ancestral traditions, but also what are the pitfalls? Um, and, uh, and then talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, some, uh, basic, uh, very basic information about what, uh, Samhain meant to kind of, uh, traditional Gaelic society and, the agricultural cycle of the year and, and that kind of thing. And, mm. um, a little bit about kind of like Irish healing traditions, um, just some very basic info, but, um, yeah. So, so that should be fun. Uh, and I'm just looking forward to kind of, uh, having the growing season winding down and, uh, fall mm -hmm. is my favorite time of year. I'm just so excited for fall every year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love fall too. Yeah. Mm. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's nice to kind of get back into the groove and, mm -hmm. and chat with you again. Yeah. Thanks so much for asking me to talk about one of my very favorite things to talk about. Uh, I'm so ethically passionate about. Yeah. I think everyone should know about. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, sweet. Well, we will talk again soon. All right. Thanks so much, Micah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please like and subscribe. Also, you have the option of joining our Patreon program to support our work. Check that out on our website, which is patreon.com slash Ironmed's Almanac. Thanks so much.